Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to The Dad Presents. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Happy 2021. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season, a Merry Christmas, all of that. Now, if you're out here in California, you know, the governor forbid us to get together. But we're rule breakers here in this household, so we went for it anyway. We had about... We, we just had family over, my wife's family, but that means about 37 uh, mad, hungry Filipinos. Everybody was walking around with masks, very respectful. They're all nurses. Um, they were very respectful of all the rules. Um, Lord Newsom may have been trying to punish us a little bit for our disobeying his gathering orders when he um, gave my mother-in-law a little fit. She lost consciousness for about 20 minutes. Uh, it, was, it was quite the scene, but it turned out she just had low blood sugar and had to eat something. But, you know, everybody's got that family drama. Anyway, guys, today we've got on brilliant economist Gene Epstein. He's coming up in a few minutes. And Gene's one of the, the guys out there I respect the most. You're going to love this guy. You're going to learn so much from him. He might be the best economist on the planet. And he's going to tell us what we should all be doing with our money in 2020, excuse me, 2021. He's a leader of the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, which is the, the part of the party I subscribe to. Now, you know, I, I like to not go with parties and labels and all that. But if, I have, if, I, if I'm forced to pick one, that's where I'm going. Um, he also runs the Soho Debate Forum, where you can get lots of exciting debate action, um, where they, they debate real ideas instead of party politics. It's, it's, it's great stuff. So check that out. Um, I don't know how I've duped all these brilliant people to come on this show and talk to me in the last couple of years, but I hope you guys appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, some, some really great stuff we've been bringing you and we will continue to bring you through this year. Um, but before we get into it with Gene, I just wanted to touch on a couple things and then we'll get into it. Now, Obviously, I guess we need to start with these protests and riots going on at the Capitol. Um, and before we, we dive into the specifics of that, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because this is all you've seen on the news, but I do want to put a couple minutes in it. People all over this country are angry right now. Not, not just MAGA people. People are angry. You had the anti-lockdown protesters protesting authoritarianism back in like early June. Then just a couple weeks later, you had the BLM protests and riots against police brutality and systemic racism. And now we got this, the MAGA protest, protesting the legitimacy of the election and, and riots ensued. I mean, we all saw what happened. People are angry and they should be angry. But when you boil it all down, all these people rioting have far more in common than you think. And I feel like they need a little guidance on where to point that anger because it all just feels misguided to me. I feel like they would be best to join forces. So, I mean, the bottom line is that people who are happy and content in life, they don't go around burning cities down or trying to take over the capital, right? I would never do that. Well, I mean, I would do that if, if, if you made me unhappy by taking away my liberty, my, my freedom of speech, um, or my ability to spend time with my children, like they're talking about in New York with COVID positive people having, having the right to abduct them out of their house. There, there is something that could lead me to that. But we're not there yet. And right now, people are angry. People are very, very angry. Why are so many people angry? And I think the answer is pretty simple. The wealth and the power in this country, they're held, it's held by a tiny, tiny majority. 
And that tiny majority dictates all the rules to the rest of us. They use their wealth and power to tilt the game in their favor to get more wealth and power. They keep getting more and more wealthy while the rest of Americans struggle. Not, not all Americans struggle to make ends meet, but more and more Americans are struggling to make ends meet every year. A third of the population of Cal- California is now below the poverty line. That's insane. This is the richest country in the world. So these people, this ruling class is telling you where and when you can go. And they also are the people who control our elections and control all the power. So how exactly is that democracy? Even if the elections are fully legitimate, how is that democracy? You get two shitty choices, both of which are funded by the same billionaires. So people are angry and I get it, but they're misplacing their their anger, in my opinion. I mean, the mainstream media would have you believe that all MAGA people are racist white rednecks and what's left of right-wing media, not much of it, but what's left there would have you believing that liberals are all communists. We need to stop eating that crap up and turning on each other. You know, there's only two ways we should ever divide people up again. There's people who are powerful and wealthy and people who lack power and wealth. I don't care about skin color, gender, sexuality. I don't care if you have a dick grown out of your forehead or, or uh, a lisp. or None of that stuff matters. We shouldn't be categorizing people by that stuff. And the people who categorize us by that stuff do so. They use race, sexuality, gender, and religious to keep us fighting with each other instead of taking the fight to them where it belongs. Again, one group of people have all the wealth and all the power. They love it when we fight with each other. And we're really good at it. So look, on what happened at the Capitol, I'm going to just put it out there and openly condemn a violent takeover of the Capitol. Just like I condemned it all summer long from the left. It's, it's not the way to go about things. I mean, at least in this case, the MAGA people are at least in the right zip code. At least they're in Washington. And, and they're directing their anger towards their rulers. But they, they're just siding up with their guy, Trump. I don't think they even truly get it. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's what we need to be mad at, our rulers. And that's not just government. That's the people putting their hands in the pocket of government and giving them dollar bills and tickling their yin-yangs. I mean, now look, there's a lot of hypocrisy on all ends, on the media, social media, everything. If you were condemning property destruction from June till November when the left was doing it, you got to condemn it now. Don't be a hypocrite. There's nothing more gross. Conversely, if you're justifying it or calling it mostly peaceful protesting, you should be doing the same now. And that's what everybody on CNN was doing and all the Democrats. So I don't want to hear you crying about this. But so far, I've seen mostly hypocrites on both sides. It's because people get on a team and they stick to that team's talking points no matter what. Your teams, the thing is, your teams, they're bullshit. Your teams are bullshit. Your MAGA team, your BLM team, they're bullshit. They're bullshit teams. And the leaders of your teams don't give a flying fuck about you. They just don't. I care about you. Maddie cares about you. Your neighbors care about you. Your kids care about you. Your parents care about you. Your friends and neighbors care about you. And those are the people you're fighting with. Because some of them swallowed poison pills from the other team. And you swallowed the poison pills of your team. So you start fighting with each other. Stupid. Now, personally, I condemned property destruction all summer long, and I'm doing it again now. And I would never in a million zillion years riot or protest on behalf of any politician. I just wouldn't. They're, they're all scumbags. Some are lesser scumbags than others. 
But like I said, I absolutely will protest when I feel my rights are in danger. Uh, that's why I protested against police brutality. I wasn't protesting. I wasn't protesting uh, racism because, I, uh, as far as I can see, you can't prove that the police were being racist. The numbers just don't show it. But I will protest police brutality. I absolutely support breaking down the police force. I support breaking down government wherever it is, um, because the police force, though most of them are good people, ninety nine percent, like we like to say, most of them are good people. They're still an arm of the government who is not to be trusted. I also joined in on the lockdown protests more feverishly on that because those were so disgusting to me that that somebody's going to try to be my daddy and tell me where and when I can go. I'm perfectly capable of social distancing and making decisions for myself and my family and my community. I don't need daddy. Anyway, we've been over that. I don't want to see violence in this country. I really hope it doesn't come to that. I really, really hope it doesn't come to that. But things need to change because voting is not going to fix it. Because like I said, we're only ever presented with one corrupt, bought and paid for option or another. The only thing that would have been different if we had Hillary instead of Trump is that we would have been fighting a lot more wars and uh, people would not have been raising a fuss because she talks pretty. Um, Trump did some good things that Hillary would not have and vice versa. But for the most part, they're still bought and paid for by the same people. We've got a corrupted system of government where those with power and money win the election, regardless of whether a Republican or Democrat wins because they're funding all the candidates. They control all the mainstream media, Hollywood, and all the social media companies. And right now they use all of those arms of control to, to yap and yap and yap about woke ideology and social justice politics because it gets everybody up in a fever pitch and they don't care at all about it. JP Morgan Chase does not give one shit about the color of your skin. They just care about how much green is in your wallet. Yet they're running ads about Black Lives Matter. It's all horse shit, guys. So some of you have been fooled into thinking that Jack Dorsey from Twitter gives a crap about you because he wears a man bun and pretends to be sensitive. So he has you convinced that he censors certain speech on his platform to protect you from evil. Jack Dorsey is evil. He could not give a flying fuck if you died of explosive hemorrhoids tomorrow. He cares about his bottom line. Some of you have been fooled into thinking that the Washington Post is in the business of giving you the news. They're not. They're owned by the world's only trillionaire, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. You think he gives a shit about giving you the truth? He literally bought a newspaper so that he could propagate and spread fear about COVID on his way to making his second trillion. No man has benefited more from lockdowns than Jeff Bezos. Of course, his newspaper is going to support lockdowns. Some of you have been fooled into thinking that Hollywood executives care about racism. I've worked in Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood. I was bad at it. I was bad at it. But I worked in Hollywood. I, I know these people. And I was also the physical therapist for the Motion Picture Television Fund. So I got up close and personal with them. Those douchebags don't care about anything except the car they drive and their drugs and their money and their hookers. They will jump on whatever bandwagon is popular and make those kind of movies just to make money. You know, I remember a conversation with my dad over Thanksgiving a decade or two ago, and he was all up in arms about the kind of crap that Hollywood puts out, too much sex, drugs, and money and all that. And I tried to tell him then, I'm like, dad, Hollywood makes crap because people buy crap. Hollywood's going to make whatever kind of movies people are going to pay for because that's who Hollywood is. 
And now, if you notice, they're making a whole lot more movies centered around social justice values. Did they suddenly become better people? No, they didn't. Okay? All of these people, all the representatives they control, they are on the wealthy and powerful team, including Donald Trump. Don't be fooled, MAGA people. He's on that team too. Now, he's not, he's not inside their team. He's not on the, the same team as them because they don't trust him. But he's wealthy and powerful and he cares. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. He doesn't care about you. I will concede that he's been less terrible than most of the presidents in my lifetime. I will concede that. I will give you that. He's done some good things. He's not gotten us into new wars. But he's, he doesn't care about you. He cares about Donald Trump. And there's no way for you or I to get on that team, team wealth and power. It's literally impossible. Unless somehow you figure out how to make a billion dollars. There's no way to fix that team. There's no way to, to, to improve their morals. They are who they are. It's impossible. There's no way to fix the system. You can't, people, this is the, the thing that infuriates me most about Republican and Democrat voters. They will both tell you that the system is broken. And then they both will go and vote to put more people in that system and give that system more power. Most especially infuriates me with Democrats, because Democrats all believe in growing the scope and power of government. They, they always vote for more spending. They always vote to, to broaden government's reach. Yet at the same time, they will admit that government is broken. So if it's broken, why are you going to give it more power? And it's not going to, there's no way to fix it. You say, yeah, but that's only because it's broken. We got to fix it. You can't fix it. You can't fix government. There's no way because the people who control the rules, the people who would need to fix it, are the ones who would be hurt by fixing it. Why am I going to fix a system that is so rewarding me? The only solution is to refuse to participate. That's right. Don't vote unless there's a candidate on there who says out loud, I want to tear down government and decrease its size and power and scope by 75%. Otherwise, don't vote for any of those scumbags. Don't pay taxes if you think you can get away with it. Don't follow the rules. Declare yourself independent of these people. Look, Chop did it. Chop Chop showed us away. Those freaking morons. They declared their own their own you, you know independent little landmass. They said we are not under the rule of the United States. Now that didn't work out too well because they were morons, complete morons. They were led by a gangbanger and because it was like a thousand people. It takes a nation. I'm not saying I'm not saying we need a, we need an uprising and we need we need a, a new country. What I'm saying is we need to take the power back for ourselves. We need to say no more Democrats, no more Republicans, no more anyone who is being funded by these billionaires. You know, I don't know. I mean, this is this is the greatest country to ever exist. I mean, smashing on America is now fashionable, like like so many other trends. It starts in Hollywood and it's a fucking gay stupid trend. It's dumb. America is the best country that's ever existed. It's not perfect, and we're going in the wrong direction. We got to fix it. But our government bites it. Our government eats my soggy underwear after a jog. Our government is not America. We're America, and we need to take America back, hopefully without resorting to violence. Um, as you all know, Congress came back to session Monday 
And the first thing they did in the House of Representatives was to pass legislation, sweeping legislation, to remove all gendered language from the House. No more discussions or bills will be written using offensive gendered language. You know, terms like, as they specifically laid out in the bill, terms like mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, son, daughter, etc., etc. For now on, if they want to talk about their niece, instead of referring to him as their niece, which is offensive gendered language, they shall refer to that person as their siblings' offspring. That is how the bill is laid out. Now, I know it all feels a little clunky to say my siblings' offspring instead of saying my niece. Um, Seems a little clunky and unnecessary, but they're doing this because it's important and because up there on Capitol Hill, they are good, wholesome people, unlike you. Now, you might think there's bigger fish to fry and that you know maybe the House should focus on other issues, I don't know, like maybe the $30 trillion in debt they've accumulated in the past couple decades, including $5 trillion they've accumulated just this past year. Uh, maybe they should focus on the pandemic. They keep telling us it's going to basically wipe out humanity. Maybe focus on that. I don't know, maybe focus on healthcare or the tens of thousands of businesses they've forced out of work with their authoritarian rules or We've got AOC there. She keeps telling us that the world's going to end in 12 years because of global warming. Um, actually, she's been saying that for two years, so I guess the world is ending now in 10 years. So that seems pretty urgent. Maybe maybe get on that instead of this gendered language thing. Uh, maybe look into healthcare or how social media companies have been repressing speech, most especially in the last year. So, you know... I understand if you think that that Congress and the House should focus their energy on those kind of things, Um, but that's because you're a bad person. They're putting their energy right where it belongs, because how can we possibly heal as a nation after the horrible reign of Donald Trump if people are still using gendered language? How can we get anything right when when little girls... um, I'm sorry, when small children with vaginas look at their parents and say things like, I love you, daddy, or I love you, mommy. We can't have that in America. There are no mommies and there are no daddies because gender isn't real. Got that? But at the same time, later this year, when I certainly come around to deciding I'm actually a woman, and I mean, that's inevitable. I dress up in women's clothing at least twice a year just for shits and giggles. Uh, I'm obviously repressing something deep within me. So when I decide later this year that I'm actually a woman, which isn't actually a real thing, you have to pay for my surgery with your tax dollars. And if you refuse to, it's because you're a bigot and a transphobe. Also, I know a lot of you women out there, I'm sorry, people with vaginas out there, take pride in being a great mom. I know my wife does. But that shit ends today. My wife is not a mom. She will no longer be called a mom. She's a co-parent, just like me. And neither of us is anything different than the other. And that's why I will no longer be getting things off the top, top shelf for her or opening car doors or manning the barbecue. Doing so would be disrespectful to her as a person. But also, I mean, since she has a vagina... We need to legislate that she gets paid an equal amount of money for her job as a nurse as compared to men 
which aren't a real thing, who do her job, even though when you compare salaries between the genders, which aren't real, and you, and you only cross-compare against like jobs, the pay cap between the non-real genders completely disappears. In fact, in the profession of nursing, women, which again, are not actually real, actually get paid more than men, which also aren't real. But whatever, I mean, that's what Congress is up to. Legislating how we talk. And they've been doing this for a couple years now and just upping the ante every single time. And you may, not, you may think it's not a big deal, but things we were saying just two and three years ago were, were, were dangerous and that it would lead to stuff like this is now leading to stuff like this. And this kind of stuff eventually leads to policing language out in the real world. I mean, if, 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 if you doubt the authoritarian nature of government at this point after they've forced so many people out of work, after they've been complicit with these social media companies in absolutely interfering in the election by deciding what can be posted and what cannot be posted, irregardless of fact, then I don't know, man, you might just be a sucker. Or maybe you know something I don't. I don't know. But let's just move along. All right, guys. You know, fat dudes and party girls, get out there in 2021 and spread some love. We definitely need more love spread throughout our communities with one another. We need to turn off the mainstream media who gets us worked up into a froth every day and just make fun of it. Just look at it and make fun of it because it's nonsense. Yeah, we got to fight back. We definitely got to fight back, but not against each other. You know, even if you disagree with what I'm saying, I've got nothing but good vibes to send you. I, I, you're not my enemy. I'm not your enemy. We got to work together to fix all this. All right. Okay, one other thing before we get into it with Gene. Um, we haven't done parenting questions in a while. Um, we've, we've been so wrapped up in, in society that we've, we've gotten away from what this show is about, which is The Dad Presents. It's about being a dad. So I, I thought I'd take one today. And we got Teddy from Alabama. And I took this question because um, it hit a nerve with me. Teddy says, I've got two young boys at home, ages 9 and 12, and they just will not stop fighting. I need some help. That's what Teddy says. Teddy, I feel you, brother. And Dude, I need help too. I try to have the answers for you guys, but this one, this this has me perplexed in my own home. You guys know I have a I have a nine eight year old and an eleven year old. Jesus, I also might have Alzheimer's. Eight year old and an eleven year old. Um, they're constantly fighting, and and I try everything. And what what I've found is that regardless of how I raise my boys, they're two different people who respond to things completely differently. The, the, the older one is a pleaser, he's a lover, he's a sweetheart, and the younger one is stubborn as a bull, hard-headed, he's motivated, he's going to be very successful in life, definitely. I, I do not worry about him later in life. He's, he's going to make it, but he gives us fits, and he's always blasting his older brother. He's always picking the fights and picking on him, which might not be unusual, you know, as, as the younger brother 
I think you're always fighting for attention a little bit. Now, we give him plenty of attention, always. Now, Ted, I don't know what your situation is, who's picking the fights. You didn't get very specific. But in our house, it's it's the the younger one, the eight-year-old, always instigating. And then eventually the 11-year-old st- starts crying. Or more recently, I've I've told him to stop crying and fight back. Um, I, I've told him, you know, look, that's your younger brother. You can't let him do that stuff to you. You've you've got to assert yourself. He picks on you and you come crying to us. Like you're three years older than him. You've got 20 pounds on him. Now that may seem archaic, but we've tried everything else. We've tried I I want to tell you some of the things I've tried. I've sat them down an unspeakable amount of times and talked to them about look, you guys are brothers, you're gonna be best friends for life. Uh, I know you're way more into your friends these days, but 20 years from now, it's going to be you and him. And I don't know that that message hits home at this age. I've tried the, the, the tactic of sitting them down and making them talk out their problems. And they're not allowed to get up from the chair until they talk it out and work it out. And if they raise their voice during trying to work it out beyond a certain level, they get a timeout. I've, tried, I've gone to extremes such as making them hug each other and stand there hugging each other for 10 minutes not allowing to break from it. I've tried tactics like making them stare into each other's eyes while tied together with a jump rope, staring into each other's eyes and saying, I love you, brother. I love you, brother. Back and forth for 10 minutes. Ridiculous things I've tried to, to try and get them along, to get along. I've tried not allowing them to play with each other for a day to, to make them miss each other. I've tried everything, literally everything. Everything I've read, I've tried it all. And what I'm starting to think is that it might just be in boys' nature to fight with each other. Now, I know from what we just learned from Congress about banning gendered language, I know that we're not allowed to say that boys and girls are different when they're younger, but any parent knows that's just some fucking horseshit, okay? Any parent knows that is. Now, we don't have little girls, but but we're around a lot of little girls with our friends, and it's, it's different. They will fight too. Young s- girls will fight with each other, but... It doesn't get violent, or at least I haven't seen it get violent, or at least it does not get violent as much. Um, They get their feelings hurt. Um, They give each other the silent treatment like my wife will do. Uh, They're more calculated. Men, men, boys, little boys, just go at it. Um, Myself and my brothers did it. Same situation there. My little brother was the one instigating I mean, I remember a time when he tried to literally take off my head with a tennis racket when he was probably nine and I was probably 12, maybe a little older. I don't know. But um, I don't recall ever beating up my little brother. I don't recall ever hitting him. I'm sure I wrestled him down sometimes and made him submit, but he was always the one instigating. Same situation we have in my house. I know my dad and his siblings, he had uh, two brothers. They fought. I think it's just the nature of being a boy. And I don't think you can control it or stop it. The best you can hope to do is contain it, stop them from hurting each other, and teach them some some viable, healthy lessons along the way. Now, I've actually considered that if they cannot stop fighting with one another, that if they want to continue to fight and bicker and smack each other and, and all of that, to put them in the backyard and let them go out at blood sport style till somebody quits. Now, I don't think I'm going to do that, and the bride is definitely not on board with that. I brought it up this morning, Um, but I'm out of ideas. I'm out of ideas for making peace, and I'm tired of negotiating their problems, 
And I don't think that Teddy and myself are alone. So if any of you have two young boys who like to fight and you have any ideas on, on how to get it to stop, share those ideas. Send it, send it to me on Messenger at the Dad Presents on Facebook. Also send other parenting questions. Um, in the past, I think I've, been, I've given some great advice on this show. Um, maybe not, maybe you think it's terrible, but this one is one that has me perplexed because it's one I'm living and one I don't have a solution to. Now, I I don't want to give the, um, perception out there that my kids are just constantly beating the crap out of each other. They're not, um, maybe only two or three times ever has it come to where they're actually on the ground wrestling with each other and throwing blows, but it, there's just bickering every day and it's annoying. So if you guys can help Teddy and myself, shoot that advice out there. All right, so now we are going to have a word from our sponsors, and then we will get into it with the immeasurably talented and extraordinarily intelligent Mr. Gene Epstein. All right, man, I want to take a minute to talk to you about my undies. Now, I know most of you men don't want to listen to another man talk about his underwear, but that's probably just because you guys are toxically masculine. I mean, guys, it's 2020 and toxic masculinity is a big problem here. So we're going we're gonna to take a shot at putting that down and opening our minds and getting with the program. So set your ideas about toxic masculinity aside. Ideas like, you know, a man should be responsible for taking care of his wife and family. And ideas like, you know, men are sometimes better than girls at sports. Put those outdated, archaic ideas out of your head so we can focus on something very important. Underwear from sheathunderwear.com that will protect your peener and your testes. And you can go to their website, sheathunderwear.com, use the code word DAD and get 20% off. And guys, I'm going to tell you straight up, the underwear I'm wearing, sheath underwear, most comfortable thing I've ever worn. No contest. It's almost as if they are made out of the, the world's most expensive soft cashmere, but like a magical kind of cashmere that stays cool under all circumstances. And I know the demographics of the guys that listen to this show. You know, you're a bunch of dirty dudes who don't give a fuck, don't necessarily shower too much. You've probably been wearing the same nasty ass crusty drawers for a decade, maybe since high school, you know, the elastics worn out. Uh, there's some funky stains on them and more than likely some holes. Time to treat yourself, guys. You deserve it. Treat your lady. Treat your lady by putting on some fresh drawers. So I want you to pause this podcast. Pause. Don't leave it. Pause it. Go to sheathunderwear.com and order some fresh drawers using the code word DAD for 20% off. Trust me, you're going to thank me. I mean, these underwear... They will gently snuggle your boys the way a, a, the way a strong mama bear cradles her baby bears. Mm-hmm. Pro, you know, not the best analogy. Mama bears have been known to actually eat their babies at times, now that I think about it. Um, so not the best analogy. People love cute little fair, furry bears because they've been anthropomorphizing, anthro, anthropomorphizing, you know the word, predators at Disney for a very long time. And it's why you see like dumb kids climbing into bear cages and tiger cages and gorilla cages at the zoo. Those kids are idiots. They got terrible parents. Disney's to blame for that. And when I think about it, maybe it's a good thing. We got way too many people in this world and this is a way to kind of 
thin the herd, you know, the same way that, that a peanut allergy should be allowed to run its course and thin out the weak from the rest of us. So those terrible genes don't get passed on to the rest of humanity. I digress. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about sheath underwear. So guys, they're the best. It's my favorite item of clothing I ever had. I'm hoping at some point they start making like sports theme underwear, you know, so I can get some Clippers underwear or some Steelers underwear or something like that because I absolutely love them. And this is coming from a guy who went most of his life commando, no underwear. Go to sheathunderwear.com, code word the dad, get yourself a pair. If you don't like them, buy them. If you don't like them, send them, mail them to me. And I'll straight up mail you your money back. All right? Password, dad. Also, disclaimer, I will not mail you your money back. All right, let's get into the show. Okay, everybody, I'd like to introduce you to Gene Epstein. He's one of the best economists in the world. He's taught economics at St. John's University. He's a leader in the Mises Wing of the Libertarian Party, and he runs the Libertarian Soho Debate Forum, which, which is a great place to go and, and get educated, um, especially about libertarian ideas. Uh, Gene, thanks for coming on our show to educate myself and some of the heathens who listen here. Um, appreciate <laughs> well, you're, it. See, so you're, you're based in L.A., we're is based in LA, yes. Okay, yes. a lot of heathens there, but a lot of nice people too. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Angela Cardell, I admire her. She said, "LA gets a bad rap because of politics and Hollywood." It's yeah. It's a. It's a. I mean, the people here are great. Yeah, people anywhere are great. Well, you know, I I had relatives who lived in Paris and who lived in LA, and the way they put it to me goes, "Paris is a is a great city to visit." but not a great city to live in. LA, you visit it and you think it's kind of superficial, but live there and you see all these ethnic places and restaurants and it's a real uh, series of communities and they really like living there. So uh, yeah. I find it. And then there was that guy who was covering all the ethnic resident restaurants who died uh, a couple of years ago. Anyway, so LA, I, I, I romanticize LA, even though of course I'm, I'm stuck in Manhattan. Yeah, I I love it. Um, work. Were you born actually, and raised? No, no. I've I've lived in twenty two different places, but I've been here about nineteen twenty years. We love it. We're actually considering moving, because uh, of politics. But I really yeah. don't want to. We're we're going to try oh, wow. to make it work. Yeah, I've got the same problem. Twenty two different places. Is that what you said? Yeah, I've I've so bounced you, around for a while. You're an army brat. Yeah. No, nope. No. I just I just wanted to kind of see the country when I was young, so I'd take. I'd take little jobs for three months, six months, and then I'd bounce to the next city. And then I got here and I was like, you know, I've been everywhere. This is, this is the best oh, spot. I and I stayed. Then yeah. you fall in love, you make babies, all that, you know? Yeah. Well, that um, makes- so we want to, you know, we want to do, uh, of course you're the economic expert, but yeah. I guess before we, we get into that, it'd be yeah. silly to not talk about what happened this week at the Capitol. Yeah. Cause it's, it's uh-huh. bonkers. Um, I know that's not your your wheelhouse necessarily, but what yeah. do you expect the fallout to be from this? Well, I, I have to say you should tell me. I, I don't know the 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 only I, I really, in a way, I have to I have to duck the question, and so uh, you you probably overbuild me to the audience. Uh, I my 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 only mantra in this case is to the libertarians. Uh, I mean, I can't call myself a Trump supporter. Um, I I would have preferred uh, that Trump win the election, uh, and especially, of course, would have preferred that uh, the uh, Senate election, the Senate go to the Republicans 
Uh, yeah, that was, was, that was big, the Senate. That and was troublesome. Trump blew that. I think there's probably a good argument that he could have made a difference and didn't because he's yeah. such a lunatic. Right. Uh, but um, in a way, I guess I sort of have to duck the question and change the subject unless, of course, it relates. I just want, I want all of those who oppose the lockdowns, I want all libertarians to commit themselves to massive nonviolent civil disobedience whenever right. they can, massive nonviolent demonstrations wherever we can do it. I'm a Second Amendment fundamentalist. I do think that uh, that guns in the hands of people do diminish crime. I could even explain why it's a fairly simple argument that it does, uh, that guns do diminish crime. However, uh, obviously, uh, the government has the drones. They've got the tanks. They've right. got a monopoly on violence. So for that reason alone, the people I identify with should commit themselves to nonviolence, yes. a great discipline, a nonviolent civil disobedience. Of course, there are moral reasons as well. The moral burden is, of course, on anybody who would resort to violence in keeping with the zero, what I prefer to call the zero aggression principle. People get hurt when you resort to violence. People get killed when you mm -hmm. resort to violence. But yep. tactically, cynically, obviously, we can't win against the powers that be uh, if we're going to resort to violence. They'll just crush us with their tanks and their drones. Yeah, so exactly. I, in a way, I didn't. I ducked the question. But what's your remark? No, you, you didn't. You didn't duck the question. I guess my concern is that. Um, I don't, I don't have anything. Um, I, I, I like re resisting the power. And I think at least these protesters are, are in the right zip code with their fight, right? They're in the right yeah. zip code, yeah. but storming the Capitol, I don't see, it doesn't accomplish anything. And yeah. now I fear there's going to be all kinds of oh. more draconian laws that come out of this, taking away more rights. You know, like every time there's any kind of catastrophe in America, that's the first thing the government does is steal away some of our rights. That's what I'm worried about. I guess so. You know, the you know, the cross currents are really great. Who knows? And it might be, uh, it, it might be a go in different directions. I mean, you you, you could be right. Uh, absolutely. I, I again, I mostly uh, was interested in what what how the makeup of the Senate will affect. Uh, what comes out of the White House? I'm hopeful yeah, that it's still it's still complicated. I think that uh, it's complicated in the sense that clearly the progressives probably won't get their way. It's probably it probably will still be difficult for the Democrats to control the Senate, even though they've got uh, the, the the 50 votes plus uh, uh, Kamala Harris's VP vote, and so that concerns me. But but with respect to uh, to further uh, crackdowns, uh, you know, it could be that that uh, there will be an attempt at reconciliation. Who knows what that slightly demented uh, old guy is, uh, you know, uh, uh, old, uh, what's his name, is going to do. Um, and so I, I think it's up for grabs. So who knows? I probably have an unfortunate optimistic tilt, uh, which I guess will probably come out in that in, in this interview. Well, uh, we need so we need some action. optimism. So yeah. I, 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 I need a little optimism, even though yeah. <laughs> even if you don't buy my optimism. No, we yeah. need it. I want to hear it. So <laughs> let, <laughs> let me let me ask you about this. Like, um, you yeah. know, the summer we had the the yeah. BLM riots, and I think that kind of I, I, yeah. I want to say red pilled a lot of uh, liberals to the idea of um, you know. The government power, police brutality, is a problem. Do you think what went down at the the Capitol and and that woman getting shot and 
and the resisting of the police. Do you think that might red pill some conservatives to the well, well that's well well that's right. Well, yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, I know you tell me. I mean, clearly it was a it, I mean, one would think that didn't didn't one one would think that the reaction on the part of the cops would bother everybody. I mean, especially the progressives. I mean, you you, you I think you have probably better thoughts on it than I, but uh, clearly it was it was a, a tragic uh action and indicated uh, lack of discipline on the part of the uh, part of the cops and one would think that it should shock everybody across the political spectrum but you correct me if I'm wrong on that uh, I mean what well, wouldn't it shock everyone I well I, I don't I think that when these things happen yeah. uh, everybody retreats to their teams so like in yeah. in the summer it, it appalled liberals and this one will haul conservatives and there's not much crossover. Um, wow. but, okay. but ideally, yeah. I think uniformly, yeah. eventually everybody kind of gets the point that that um, the police, pl- you know, police are good people. The people on the police force, I know them, but they're an arm of the government and and they follow government orders and they can be a danger because of that. And that's that's the message that I would like everybody to kind of learn. You know, well, I guess yeah. Well, indeed, you're, well, I think you're right that they're good people on balance, on uh, but obviously not all of them necessarily are, and so uh, that usually these incidents come from the exceptions who aren't. Right. Uh, I've I've been asked recently to reflect uh, uh, via Twitter. I've been asked to ref- to reflect on how uh, how the violence of the 1960s compares with today. And um, you know, I'm I'm 76. I was I demonstrated against the Democratic Convention in August of 1968. Uh, and uh, I was uh, at that point saying the same thing I'm saying now, which is that um, that our movement against the Vietnam War in those days, primarily against the Vietnam War, has got to uh, commit itself to nonviolence. Uh, and I was disgusted by the way my fellow demonstrators were in many cases, not all cases, trying to provoke the cops. And so there were enough cops provoked, so violence ensued. And then there was the Weather Underground. You may mm-hmm. never have heard of them or to be no, to, to know about them. The Weather Underground weren't all. They named themselves after after a, a, a Bob Dylan uh, lyric. Uh, it, uh, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. They mm-hmm. called themselves the weathermen and they were called the weather underground and they bombed. They bombed buildings. Uh, they, 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 an accidental bomb went off in Greenwich Village that they were trying to make. I, at that time, was, was studying economics at the new school just around the corner. And I heard the explosion. Oh, wow. And and so what they would do, they would bomb buildings, but they would be very nice about it. They'd do it at night and they'd make a phone call from a payphone to the workmen in the building to, to warn them to clear out because they're just being very nice. They didn't want to kill anybody. However, obviously that's a very dicey proposition sure. when you're calling from a payphone in those days. You know, <laughs> what you get through, will everybody listen to you? So I'm trying to remember whether they killed anybody in the process. But my point is that that what was appalling in those days is that uh, is that while the weather underground were a minority, um, they were sort of respected. Nobody criticized them. And uh, even though uh, people like um, like I did, I mean, here we were, uh, here we were demonstrating against the Vietnam War, the massive act of violence that killed half a million Americans and millions of, of Viet- Vietnamese and Indochinese, and we ourselves resorting to violence. 
And uh, so that does bother me. And in the case, as I say, of the libertarians, many of whom like to walk around with guns, and I don't blame them necessarily for wanting to sport their guns and wanting to defend themselves if they are attacked. You know, if somebody attacks them or attacks their home, then obviously they have to resort to guns. But when you are demonstrating against the government, when you're trying to bring about political change, uh, do it, do it nonviolently. I've repeated myself five times about that, so I'll shut up. But I, I guess, no, but it, I it, it doesn't, it doesn't. Walking resonates. around, wait, walking wait, wait. around with a gun when you're trying to preach a message of nonviolence and and the government has a problem, it seems yeah. to conflict with your message. So I, I get it too, but it doesn't. Well, well precisely the, well. the violence of the, the violence of the cops, you know, the the violence of the state, you know, and uh, you know, we libertarians presumably, I mean, we should go with with my with Walter Block's statement that that the primary libertarian issue is, of course, the warfare state, right. many other issues. But I, I as an economist, along with Walter Block, who's also an economist, have to admit that uh, that it's that it's Scott Horton who's got the major message. Scott Horton, who yes. is the real libertarian uh, expert on U.S. foreign policy. That's where the real problem lies on the uh, on on the uh, depredation and violations of the state. One hundred percent. That kind of violence, and and how can we then be violent uh, in response? Apart from the obvious point that tactically it's a very dumb idea. They will crush us, right? Uh, uh, if we try to get uh, violent. Yeah. yeah, and I want to get into economics, but but on yeah. that point, that I think that's the one. That's the one thing that makes uh, libertarian philosophy superior to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is the 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 non-aggression principle. Yeah. Like everything starts from right there, and you can kind of boil everything back down to that one principle. Like it's a it's a it's a belief system. It's a party based in a singular principle, which is the most important principle. It's our launching point, and actually. I, I keep forgetting the name of the philosopher whom Tom Woods interviewed, who said, "You know, the the idea of calling something a non uh, a negative is less resonates less than calling it a zero. So that's why I like to call it the zap rather than the nap, the zero aggression principle. But uh, we we agree, and uh, and indeed, uh, this this the zero aggression principle, which of course is the primary fundamental." Uh, uh, launching point for our exploration of the empirical world is key to why we object to the lockdowns, mm -hmm. to the mitigations, yep. because uh, we don't deny, by the way, that the uh, that that there is an argument potentially that that uh, I that if I can infect you with a deadly virus, then you have a right to exclude me. You have a right to insist that I wear a mask or whatever else if I enter your home or or prevent me from entering your home. That that theory is actually an argument that can be made for yes. mitigation and lockdowns based on the zero aggression principle, because it is potentially an act of aggression to infect somebody with a deadly virus. However, however, when it comes to the lockdowns, which aggress against so many, mm -hmm. uh, the state bears the burden of proof. Anybody who advocates lockdowns bears there's the burden of proof because because the default position is let people do what they want with their lives. Uh, let them let if they want to hold meetings, if they want to go out to a restaurant, if the restaurant wants to invite them over. If you want to leave your home, if you want to do what you want, then that's the default position. Yes. The, the to prevent you from doing so, that advocate of lockdowns bears a very heavy burden of proof, and I believe that that's crucial. 
because uh, because the empirical case is always a little bit fuzzy. But mm-hmm. every time we have an issue where we don't know what the answer is, we if we just deal with the real weight of the evidence, then overwhelmingly uh, the lockdowns uh, should never be. They are a violation of our rights and uh, and they should be opposed. Uh, yes, I change the subject. Here. No, no, it's fine. Another. It's of course I want to talk about the lockdowns too, but it, it yeah. we've not seen any evidence that the lockdowns and the way in which they've been conductive have reduced uh, the spread of this disease. I mean, we've been on on lockdown in California for 10 months and we're doing worse than anybody. Right. So like you said, the burden of proof is, is on the state to show that, that this methodology is going to work as methodology. Yeah, exactly. The principle is kind of at odds with itself, as you mentioned, like it it is not, could be seen as an act of aggression to spread the disease, but it's definitely an act of aggression to tell someone they got to stay at home. So you've got to bounce that out and see where, where is the least amount of aggression? Where is the least amount of damage and the economic fallout and economic fallouts have, have uh, consequences in life. I mean, it will cause life. What's that going to be? We don't know yet. Right. And well, we ask you, of course, we have some idea that's going to be. Yes. What do you think? We have some idea on the fallout, uh, the fallout on on uh, on uh, the poor people of the world, uh, on the on the on the lack of help that that the rich countries are giving them, the the starvation that's that's resulting on the part just that alone. Yes. Uh, the effect and on that's those already happening. Really, yeah, the two dollar a day people of the world mm-hmm. who really live on the edge are being hurt. The poor people of of of, uh, of even the advanced industrial countries are being hurt severely. They're, they're the ones whose jobs are being destroyed uh, and lives are being crushed. Uh, and indeed, uh, uh, even to go beyond the formulation that I've made and that you've identified with, which is that yes, you could say that that infecting somebody is an act of aggression. So you have a potential argument there. But but then when you bring in uh, various complications, the fact that a virus uh, epidemic only ends through natural herd immunity, that enough mm-hmm. healthy people have to be infected uh, so that in order for uh, the epidemic to end. Right. Uh, and then when you bring in something else, which is that when you delay herd immunity, uh, when when you, uh, if, if to the extent that you might be able to do so, uh, if you slow it down, then, then there's more of a potential for what's called an escape virus to a mitigation, a mutation to arise. And I've been persuaded by uh, by epidemiologists in particular named Clint Rutkowski that, that the mutation out of Spain and other mutations are basically a result of the lockdowns. So it's actually causing more harm than good, even, even in practice with respect to that kind of, of harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's an even stronger case for opposing uh, the lockdowns. And in fact, uh, oddly enough, when we talk about, it's not so odd, but but interestingly enough, when we talk about uh, the the natural process of herd immunity, uh, uh, that, that again, every epidemic can only end with herd immunity, and that as a practical matter, vaccines, of course, can bring about herd immunity, but vaccines are delayed, vaccines have to be tested, the vaccines we've got out on the market now have not adequately been tested. Ultimately, you need natural herd immunity, and yeah. that and that actually is analogous to the uh, the the Austrian economics point that many of us make that I make, which is that when a malinvestment happens, you have to let the bankruptcies happen. And so, uh, right, and so right. This, yeah, oddly enough, uh, 
yeah oddly enough yeah well uh, interesting yeah i'm i'm glad that that you see uh the analogy and um and then the only the only sympathy uh the only empathy i can get i can give to those who just never see this point is that i understand that they regard herd immunity and indeed, they regard letting the bankruptcies happen as a kind of a tragic view of the world. They, they see it as they, being cruel. They, they, being cruel, exactly. Yeah. They hold on to the uh, the fantasy that that government can make it right, that there are no bad consequences. That you know, it's it, it's like we would say we didn't bring the malinvestment bubble that is now bursting. It's tragic that it's going to cause that it's going to cause harm. It's going to cause bankruptcies. But uh, but that's unfortunately uh, the the way of the world, the way of the economy. We didn't bring the epidemic. Unfortunately, it's going to cause some illness and death, but we can minimize it uh, by allowing uh, the herd immunity to occur. And yeah. that's a very yeah. difficult a message for people uh, to accept, right? Uh, when people they have feel, faith that the capital like, will come, like with yeah. 2008 crash and with this, yeah. they feel like yeah. government needs to do something to save yeah. us. Yeah, I mean that doing doing nothing is just is yeah. just cruel. Um, yeah. But not realizing that what government does is is making things work and or making things yeah. worse. And and to your mm -hmm. point on on um, lockdowns and herd immunity. I work in healthcare. I'm not an expert yeah. in um, in infectious diseases, but I know I, I know enough to know that a, a virus is what going to. What do you do in healthcare? Yeah. I, I, I run a physical therapy company, uh, direct nurses oh. all over the city. What? Long story. Oh, I, I don't love it. Uh -huh. I'm trying to get out of it. I've been doing it 20 years. Oh. But um, a virus is going to spread. That's what it's going to do. So if yeah, you're going to yeah. lock down, if you actually want an effective lockdown, what you literally need to do is lock everyone in their homes, no essential workers, no hospitals, no yeah. nothing for a month. And that yeah. might, that might stop it. It might, there's no guarantee. Well, you know we're not going yeah, to do yeah. that. And that would be an atrocious yeah. thing for the government to do. So these half-assed measures, they're just, yeah. they're pointless. Well, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, you, you, interesting that you talk about, you know, sort of the, the, I guess the ultimate of what people imagine a lockdown necessarily involves. Uh, I don't know how it's possible to have a 100% lockdown. Obviously, food has to be delivered. Right. Uh, uh, if you have the kind of lockdown you've described, then we'll all starve. I mean, right. you know, right. we, we do. I mean, that's why that's part of the problem with lockdowns, as you indicate. Uh, it's almost a misnomer. Uh, the uh, the uh, A lot of things have to be done. And so a lot of basic uh, essential workers who, who are usually uh, the, the lower half of the population have got to expose mm -hmm. themselves. And then, then uh, paradoxically, ironically, a lot of us are inside. The essential workers go home, and then people infect each other even more. So, who knows the extent to which the lockdowns even help? But again, to the to the extent that they do help, uh, they do delay herd immunity. They can potentially harm that it, right. it's all it's all a complete sort of can of worms and ultimately we'd say look you've got no real argument uh, the default position is allow freedom 
to happen. Your empirical case is very, very weak. And yet, of course, uh, whenever you hear from uh, people who defend lockdowns, they have the impression that the burden of proof is on us, who, mm-hmm. that, that we right. bear the burden of proof to prove, to demonstrate the lockdowns make no sense. They never, unfortunately, recognize, because they identify themselves, I guess, with the with the authoritarians and totalitarians of this world. They, they take it for granted that we bear the burden of proof, which, of course, yes. is exactly the They are the aggressors. Truth. They bear the yeah. burden of proof to prove that their aggression is worth what they're costing us. That's precisely 100%. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I want to get back to the lockdowns, but I, I definitely sure. want to switch gears a little bit for economics because okay. that's, oh, yeah. that's your wheelhouse. Um, yeah. You come from the, Austria, uh, the Austrian School of Economics. I'm, I'm on board yeah. with that. For people who don't yeah. know, um, can you give like a bird's eye view of, of what, what that is? Well, um, I, I think that uh, best to talk about uh, a couple of its key attributes. Uh, uh, one in particular, in terms of differences with almost the entire range of mainstream economics, including what's sometimes called the free market economics of the Chicago School, a key difference is that uh, the Austrians do not take it for granted that the government should run the money supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Austrians uh, explain quite clearly, and I think quite brilliantly, uh, how money arises on the free market, how money inevitably can only arise on the free market. I could even, I could explain that if if we want to go into it. And that the government then comes in and has a motivation to take over the money supply. Mm -hmm. The way I put it as a libertarian is that really originally and historically, the kings needed to fight their wars and that uh, you need to finance a war and you can finance it through taxes. You can finance it through borrowing. But those are, from the government standpoint, from the king's standpoint, rather difficult and unsatisfactory ways to do it. So the best way to do it is to take over the money uh, supply and then uh, and and increase and print money uh, and debase the money supply, use the money uh, internally to finance the war rather than having to tax directly or having to borrow. And so that's really the origins of how the government took over the money supply. If I were to talk to almost any mainstream economist, I don't think that that uh, individual could explain to me uh, Ludwig von Mises' uh, insight about how money arises on the free market. Uh, His brilliant inference about about money. If you actually read the standard textbooks, they have a completely circular explanation and they never care about it because because mainstream economics is basically enamored of the idea that 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 uh, that uh, the economists consider the tables of power and it basically attracted to the idea that you want to make economics seem like a branch of mathematics now mm-hmm. i'm latching upon that aspect of things, the money supply, because really, uh, when you wade into Austrian economics, that's the key difference. I will also say that, uh, again, mainstream economics, when they publish in the in the uh, in, in the standard journals, they sound like it's a branch of physics, and the whole edifice is usually as a punchline. Economists need to advise government; they they need to be chairman of the Fed, Council of Economic Advisors, all those jobs that give you power and influence in Washington, allied John Maynard Keynes, who mm-hmm. was the original sort of Mandarin who turned economics into that 
kind of discipline. I will say, however, that when many mainstream economists talk about economics in their journalism, when they try to think it through in some rational sense, they sound like Austrian Austrians themselves. Now, so that, that, I guess, gives rise to the other aspect of Austrian economics, that it begins from the individual, from individual motivations and sort of works up from there, individual incentives to act in the world. Um, and, and, uh, and I emphasize that second, only because uh, many, most people talk in those terms uh, when they talk about the economy in rational terms. They don't. Mm. They don't deal with the crazy math and the crazy other stuff that goes on in in the mainstream publications. So those are the two key points. But as I emphasize, the touchstone is that. I guess. I guess to go back to the point about money, the touchstone is that an Austrian economist begins by talking about the functions of the marketplace, and only later do you bring in government and how government affects of the economy. You take it in two steps. Uh, mainstream economics begins from the assumption that government is very much a part of the economy, and indeed, in particular, uh, that government must be in charge of that key aspect uh, of, uh, of the economy, the money supply. Got so it. that's my best answer to, very to the real very differences. Very yeah. succinct. Sure. Um, you, sure. you, you mentioned that um, you know, yeah. government always wants to then you know, take over and control the money supply. Right, and yeah. then they, and then well, they inflate it, the currency. We've it's seen taken mass, for granted. It's taken, once you're going, I'm sorry. We, we've, we've seen we've massive in, inflation of the currency just this year. Um, people, yeah, people yeah. who are on Team Republican, they they conveniently ignore that every time a Republican is in power, they inflate the currency massively. They overspend just like the Democrats. It's all the same. Yeah. We now yeah. see the emergence of Bitcoin. I don't know how much you're into Bitcoin, but that seems like a way people are starting to take the power back of the the control of money. Um, yeah. Do you, are are mm -hmm. do you support Bitcoin? Do you see it yeah. as being promising? Do you think government's yes. eventually just going to take that over somehow as well? I uh, I've been buying a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin every month. Um, and uh, I mean, I tend to be conservative. I started in August, and uh, and actually in August, because I'm also open-minded, uh, can't make up my mind. I buy a thousand dollars worth of gold every month. Right. Now, the, now as a matter of fact, I do it through Coinbase, and because I'm inept, I, I set up this system where Coinbase debits my account. My son advised me how to do it because I've, I've been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century, and I'm always inept with these things. And then I actually, I actually pressed the thing three times, and I bought I, I bought three thousand dollars worth of, of of Bitcoin in August. Lucky mistake. That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Look, one of the luckiest mistakes I've made, and then, and then, uh, and then, the thousand dollars worth a month is, of course, uh, what is the is the classic mindless uh, uh, dollar cost averaging technique, uh, where uh, where you, of course, what means then is that if uh, if your gold in the ensuing months went down in price, so my thousand dollars bought me more gold each month, mm -hmm. and. Uh, of course, Bitcoin has exploded in price. I've done quite well. It's only a thousand dollars, three thousand in August, so it's not exactly making me rich. But uh, in fact, of course, that means that I've been buying less Bitcoin each month because Bitcoin's gone up in price. And so it's a conservative way of doing it and sort of diversifying over time. And and it's sort of like it it helps your mindset because it means you're going to buy more of it if it goes down and less of it if it goes up. Um, uh, and that's in order to prepare for what I do see uh, probably 10 years down the road. Uh, 
And uh, that's why I'm planning long term. But I, I, I can't put a timing on it because it could happen sooner. I do see very serious instability in the dollar mm-hmm. coming. Uh, and uh, although the, the the only scenario that's that that I can that where it seems like it's inevitable is about ten years down the road, uh, and so that now um, I mentioned I'm buying gold and Bitcoin because I see the potential for gold. I can't make up my mind as to what what is the future of money. I do lean in the direction of Bitcoin. Uh, it took me a while to uh to appreciate bitcoin uh, i i i was struck by the fact that uh the, based on what i read at least satoshi nakamoto uh the legendary non-existent right. or existent japanese guy i assume he's japanese my wife is japanese so uh so i i tend to take pride in that uh a fact but i mean who knows he may be some jewish guy named schwartz you know sure. pretending to be nakamoto <laughs> but anyway uh or or gentile guy i should say uh-huh. anyway, but that aside uh he there was a mention of mises you know he i think that i think that he recognized that uh the the, the nature of money and Wait, he, that, he mentioned mises I I I I I think that maybe my son is contradicting me about this. I read an account, and I didn't read the original statement, but there was a mention of Mises, I believe, by by him. All right, strike that because I can't swear to it. My only point, though, is that is that uh, I I as somebody who uh, was pretty much in bed with the Misesian theory of how money arises in the marketplace, it took me a while to appreciate. Um, how Bitcoin can become money, but uh, and I could go into that argument, but in, in a way, it's just the hang-up of somebody like myself who's an Austrian. Uh, but obviously, uh, since I'm an Austrian, I'm not hung up on other things, which is, of course, that that unlike the mainstream, I recognize that this is a very bold move in the direction of bringing the money supply back to the people. Right. Well, you it, you said yeah, earlier yeah, that yeah, only yeah. only the population, only people can create money, and that seems to be what happened here. Right. Well, that's right. Exactly. You put it. You put it well. Although it it didn't. You perhaps you're familiar with. Uh, let me indulge myself. I think it take a minute to to uh, to outline what is called the regression theorem by Ludwig von Mises, which is a, like a fancy term for just th- this idea that uh, that you ask uh, how does money have any value? What? Why? Why do you accept? You know, Money in the form of dollars right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the form of dollars. Why do you accept it? Because yesterday, uh, in very simple terms, yesterday you knew that a hundred dollars could buy things, and you had a general idea. I had a general idea if I accept the hundred dollars about what it could buy yesterday, and then why did you accept it yesterday? Well, you had a general idea of what it could buy the day before. Uh, it it always is the time thing because uh, none of us are geniuses in this regard we're just average people it can it, we know that yesterday it could buy things and so we assume that it can likely buy things today and then we turn out to be right and then tomorrow we do the same thing so going back in time it could buy something yesterday and yesterday we knew it could buy something the day before the day before that the day before that and so we're regressing back in time but then Mises asks there had to have been a day zero. There was a time when people just dealt in barter where there was practically no trade at all. How did it all start? Right. And then Mises points out, well, it had to have started in seashells, 
in gold, in silver, in uh, in cigarettes. Of course, as as perhaps you know, and, and, and famously in the British POW camp that this economist wrote about, they 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 traded goods with uh, in their care packages, and they used cigarettes as as a, as a medium of exchange, and that just arose naturally. So the point is that what happens is that it begins on day zero with something that has some value so that we know. So, so on the, on day zero, I decide, I realized, well, gold or seashells are really something that many people want or cigarettes. I may not smoke, but a lot of people do smoke. So therefore, if I offer them five cigarettes, he'll probably accept it. Cigarettes have intrinsic, have value as a commodity. So on day zero, it started from a commodity, and then and, and and the corollary of that is that it would have been impossible on day zero for any government to say, "This is this buys things." We're printing these pieces of paper, and it buys something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we're not going to believe it. We're not going to use it. And but then, what government does? Then gold became the dominant money, mm-hmm. uh, and and then they government the gold. and. Uh, mm-hmm. Took it, took in the gold, made it illegal in the United States for a while, as you may recall, under yep. Franklin D. Roosevelt. People don't own gold. They confiscated and then it, started, it, right? Confiscated. Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah. Well, they attempted. Yeah, they confiscated it to the extent that they can. I imagine people still had it hidden in their basements. They didn't. They didn't break down every door. It wasn't quite like the lockdowns. But anyway, they, they, they. You, you had to hide it, and they, and they confiscated anything that was a large stash that anybody knew about. And so they took over the gold. And then they, and of course, at the same time, they were issuing paper money. And so mm-hmm. that paper money then could be got connected to the gold because it was redeemed for the gold. And the paper money began, of course, to become money because it because the chain continued. And that's mm-hmm. the only way in which we, only reason why we're accepting those dollar bills as money. Because but that the, chain that, was broken. They broke that chain. Well, how do you mean they broke the chain? Well, they took, they, you can, you can no longer exchange a dollar for, for gold. Well, that's right. They broke the chain, but, but they didn't, but they didn't, uh, they did it slowly enough so that, so that we still accept these, this, this paper money because right. it could buy something yesterday and the day before and the okay, day before that. Yep. So therefore they did it adroitly enough so that, uh, so that uh, we're still using it as money. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, for that reason, uh, if we trace the history of money, we're still left with uh, with Mises's regression theorem that it regresses back in time to a commodity, even though it's just paper. Now it historically regresses back in time to a commodity. In that particular case, gold, or it could have been seashells. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but. Uh, the point then that government could not have created money just out of thin air. Uh, uh, it had to be base itself on the origins of money in a commodity. Uh, that argument that I've just made, which I think is a beautiful inference about the logic of money going back in history, uh, uh, that uh, inference made it a little bit difficult for me to appreciate uh, Bitcoin as money. Because Bitcoin did not didn't have origins as money, but I I, I could make the Austrian argument. I'm it's not so important to me. But you know the in the account I read, the pizza pies were historically bought by Bitcoin. That was yep. the first big transaction that was recorded, and yep. and so so suddenly the transaction was made. The point is that I believe that that uh, Satoshi was clearly basing his 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 concept on the idea that if we know about money, if we simply start start using this as money, it can become 
money, um, and uh, and that doesn't have to be rooted in a uh, in, in in a commodity. And then once you start using it as money, given all its various attributes as money, it can become money. So it's sort of it's a slight it's certainly a hybrid on the Austrian regression theorem. And so yeah, for that reason, sure. it took me a while to completely appreciate. Um, but the, the, the point is, again, though, uh, I guess another way of putting it would be to say that when you think about why gold became money, because because it has great value, it can, it, 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 uh, it, can't e- it can't easily be debased. By that, I mean in the private market, it can't be, because all the gold that now exists in the world uh, uh, the mining of new gold adds very small percentage to that massive amount of gold. It's indestructible. All of those attributes that logically meant that that gold became money. It was nobody's nobody's particular thought, but it became money for all of those logical reasons. Uh, And the logic of Bitcoin in the age of computers uh, is such that it too can become money. And so our recognition of that could make it money. It once- can also not be debased like gold because there's- Precisely. A finite, yeah. Yes. And of course, it's different in that it's got the 21 million unit limitation, yeah. which I, I, others have had some problem with as well. Um, I, I, I've had mixed feelings about that, I, uh, but I do, I do think that that's doable. In other words, gold is always going to be always going to increase if that's money, right. and um, um, and um, but this this uh, kind of money will have an absolute quantity quantity uh, limit, and I think that that actually has some advantages and disadvantages, but it nets out I think to something okay. It does mean that 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 wages and prices are going to fall over time. In, in nominal dollars, that we will have "quote unquote" price deflation, but but I believe but that's that good. That's, isn't that a good thing? Some deflation. Well, uh, it, it'll hurt. There'll be growing pains, but over time, isn't that good? Um, yeah, I, I, I it, it's good, uh, and and there'll be growing pains, as you put it. There could be potential adjustments. Uh, that will be uh, uh, have to be made, I, but I think that people will get used to it. It will be a somewhat different world. I, I got into a, a to an argument with my friend John Vallis, who runs a a, a, a a podcast on on Bitcoin, and I said, you know, money can never be a store of value. You don't store money. You put your money in bonds, stocks, and bonds, and other assets. And but but uh, I, it was kind of a fruitless argument because it's certainly true that that this will partially incur the the. The decline in prices over time will partly will partially encourage people to sort of think of money as a store of value because if you store money, if you store Bitcoin, it's going to increase in value every year. So that's a kind of an investment. That's what would happen. It will change behavior. I'm going into certain aspects of it, but I think that uh, some of my free market friends uh, are, are really hung up on that, uh, and uh, I think you're basically right that. Uh, that that it would that there will be growing pains, but it does mean that uh, that that, uh, that as long as it hap- as long as it happens uh, in terms of people's expectations, as long as put it another way, let's say that uh, goods and services ex- expand by seven percent a year, so that means that prices on average are going to go down by seven percent a year. Mm-hmm. There, there are sophisticated finance people who are so hung up that I've literally heard from a sophisticated finance person. If you're in business and 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 the prices you charge are going to go down by seven percent next year and seven percent the year 
or the year thereafter, how are we going to make a profit? Well, the obvious answer to that is that you're going to bid your factors of production, your labor and whatever else you buy in accordance with that expectation. Uh, you, you might have productivity gains. S similarly, how about the price of land? The price of land is going to change because uh, when you think in terms of how land might be priced, uh, you can think in terms of, well, if you if you own a building and let's say you're a landlord and you're renting, let's say if your rents are going to go down in accordance with my simple numbers by 7% every year, then then your stream of, of income is going to be going down two years from now by another 7%, three years from now by another 7%. So the a price at which you sell your land or you sell your building is going to be uh, reflect that expectation. And, and so there will be a deflationary expectation in the way that land is exchanged. Interesting. Uh, debts, debts will be, you know, the interest chart, there will be a positive interest rate. There's a, a big hang up on whether the interest rate could be positive, but of course the interest rates will be positive borrowing in order to induce you and me to take those Bitcoin out of our store of value and lend it. They've got to offer us some kind of rate of return if we're going to lend it. But of course they'll be able to offer it to us because they, because you as a businessman, if you want to borrow, you, you will expect to make a profit based upon what you pay for, pay how much you pay your factors of production. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, perhaps I'm going into too many technicalities, but the point is that all of these things, even relatively sophisticated economists, are a little bit hung up on them. But I think yeah, all right. of them are resolvable. No, um, they'll be growing pains, as you right. say. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just, yeah. just, just going back maybe ten minutes into that. You, you, okay, you got ten you minutes got ago. Yeah. What were we, what well, were we talking started, about ten minutes ago? The, I forgot. You started on the, the regression yeah. theorem, and and you gave a oh, yes, very clear explanation of that. And and I I would yeah. I I grasped that I understood it, and I would bet that many of my listeners, that's the first time they've heard that, and that might oh, be the yeah. best example, the best education on what money actually yeah. is. Right. So yeah. here here's here's where I'm going with that. I graduated from a university with a master's degree. I came out of college at 24 years old with a master's degree. And I knew what field physical therapy. I mean, what I'm so what physical therapy. Okay. Yeah. And I graduating, I knew nothing about money. Didn't learn anything. No. Was not educated on it in high school was not educated on it in university or grad school knew mm -hmm. nothing of it. And, and I would venture to say that's probably most people, um, yeah. And because of that, I made all kinds of mistakes, grew all kinds of debt, which I only got out of maybe five years ago. Um, <laughs> with all the worthless information they cram into our heads in school, like learning state capitals and yeah. just just nonsense, <laughs> it almost feels on purpose that they don't educate um, economics. Like I, I feel like I feel yeah. like they don't. They purpose the government purposely does not educate us on economics so as to be able to enslave us in debt. Well, <laughs> um, Purposely, purposely believes it out. Well, uh, you know, I mean, I'll put it negatively in a way. You know, I I didn't study economics in undergraduate school, uh, and uh, I mean, I I I, uh, I and I count myself lucky uh, for not having done so, because then I I was a little bit more sophisticated when I uh, eventually uh, studied. Okay, well, what happened there, guys? So we had a power outage here and Gene was rolling and dropping knowledge and educating all of us and it just dropped out. I've been in touch with him since. He's agreed to come back on for a part two because there's so much more to get through. Um, 
it turns out this is the second time this since summer that something like this has happened. I'm not great on the technology. And now that this podcast is making a little coin, I might have to hire a technological uh, person to, to handle these kind of aspects because even though it was a power outage uh, and not really my fault, we should be prepared for that kind of thing. Completely was not. I apologize to all of you and I appreciate that you've listened and you stick with the the bumps and bruises along the way as, as I'm figuring out how to do this. Maybe I'll just keep doing it for another year or two until my son, uh, little Mensa Jr., is smart enough to run the, the tech side. But um, it is affordable now. We got the ads coming in. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll splurge and hire somebody because this is this is inexcusable. I apologize. Uh, I want to thank Gene for coming on. The man is brilliant, as I'm, I'm sure you could see. I hope I did not look too foolish uh, trying to hang with him on an economic conversation. I think I did okay, at least better than I did with the tech. And so grateful that he's willing to come back in a couple weeks and finish the conversation because I, I had 20 points jotted down that I wanted to discuss with him. We made it through three in an hour because, uh, you know, talking to a guy like that, you get off track. There's just so much knowledge he has to drop, so much interesting things to, to go on tangents about. And it was wonderful. So thank you, Gene. Thank you, audience. Uh, we'll see you back next week. I think next week we're going old school with uh, B and Rose, uh, the, the two co-hosts who used to be with me every week when we were only doing parenting things before Maddie got all politicized and uh, started going on libertarian tangents. So next week, it's going to be all parenting. So come back for that. We're going to be answering your questions. Please send them in at the dad presents on messenger or email them to Matt at the dad presents. Thank you guys.